The University of Arizona's Indigenous Resilience Center supports Indigenous students, staff, and faculty while modeling and teaching respectful tribal engagement. The IRC is a hub for tribal resilience solutions, scholarships, tribal outreach, and teaching. Through a collective STEM faculty who works within the center to create a robust community of Native and Indigenous STEM scholars and students, their work is dynamic and impactful while respectfully honoring traditional knowledge and tribal sovereignty in all endeavors. Today, we take a closer look at their work around water and addressing the needs of the Navajo Nation. Hello, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and this is Impact Earth Water. I feel pretty confident in saying our guest today is someone I have been eagerly waiting to spend time with for many reasons. First of which is probably because of the genuine, outstanding praise I hear about her and her important work from her colleagues, both from the University of Arizona and other leaders around the country who are either engaged with or committed to making a difference about water as it relates to indigenous people. Secondly, her work. I will expand on that in this next hour. And last but not least, a very reliable source tells me she does it all while raising three children. Given her scope of work, her responsibilities, the pressure that I believe must be on her to lead, I honestly don't know how she does all these things, but I know she does, and it is beyond impressive. It is truly my honor and pleasure to welcome Dr. Carletta Chief, Director of the Indigenous Resilience Center and Associate Professor and Extension Specialist, Department of Environmental Science, University of Arizona. Carletta, thank you for taking the time to do this. I hear from everyone how packed your schedule is, so let's get to it since your plate is full and we have a lot of important things to share. Thank you. Thank you, Gina, for having me here today. It's wonderful to be part of this conversation. I'm excited to have it with you. I know, and I have to tell people a little bit more about you because there's so much substance there. I'm not going to read your whole bio because I would, could take up half the show, but Dr. Carletta Chief is an associate professor and extension specialist in the Department of Environmental Science, as I said at the top of the show. She is also director of the Indigenous Resilience Center, as an extension specialist, she works to bring relevant water science to Native American communities in a culturally sensitive manner, and that bears repeating, in a culturally sensitive manner. The Indigenous Resilience Center aims to facilitate efforts of the University of Arizona climate and environmental researchers, faculty, staff, and students working with Native nations to build resiliency to climate impacts and environmental challenges. And of course, there's more, and I invite our listeners to read more about our guests in the show notes for this podcast. So Carletta, this is one of those like, where do you start? But I think given the scope and importance of your work, I think you should try to walk us through the Indigenous Resilience Center as I see it as a major hub from which many things come and it matters so much and then we'll talk about its impact. So do you, is that a good place to start? Yes, definitely, because it's one of the most exciting things that I've done in, in my lifetime so far. And it's uh, a dream that I've always had um, since I, you know, started into academia. And so it's wonderful to start out our conversation that way. 
And the Indigenous Resilience Center came about uh, in some conversations in the last year. So you can see how fast things have gone in such a short amount of time. And that just demonstrates the support and the commitment of the University of Arizona to Indigenous communities and especially in the environment, which is new area that the University of Arizona will uh, come together collectively to work with tribes. We've done it in in different areas across uh, the University of Arizona, but this will be a new hub to bring all those conversations together and essentially be a gateway to tribal communities in environmental challenges that they face and seeking technical support from the University of Arizona to address those challenges. And so the University of Arizona already has recognition in environmental research, uh, particularly in, in water, and of course, many other fields. And in addition, we are a land-grant university. There are 22 tribes in the state of Arizona. And bringing all of that together makes quite sense to build a center to be that gateway to support tribes in environmental uh, areas uh, in responding to the challenges that they face and in supporting the resilience of tribes to respond to those environmental challenges. With the pandemic that occurred in the past couple of years and how it has devastated many uh, tribes across the United States, that need really rose and became clear to many people, uh, decision makers, uh, leaders uh, of tribal nations. And so the University of Arizona has stepped forward to uh, basically uh, build a center to support the capacity of tribes to be more resilient through different perturbations that they may face into the future. And I really want to dig a little bit deeper into that, but give us a sense for how many Indigenous people are there worldwide and what does that represent? Because when I read the statistics, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I did not think the number was that high. And I think it really matters to weave that into the conversation. Yes. Um, So I think in addition to just the numbers of Indigenous peoples around the world, one of the really clear statistics that has come about of that is that Indigenous people hold uh, lands that contain 80% of the biodiversity in the world. So in that fact itself, you can tell that Indigenous peoples are stewards of the land. They have protected this biodiversity using, you know, century thousand old practices that is based on their traditional knowledge, the local observations they have seen over time. And they continue to practice those traditional ways. And with the Indigenous Resilience Center, that's one area that we want to foster and definitely value and integrate into the work that we do. And Really exciting is with the newly appointed 
Secretary of Interior, Deb yes. Holland. Yes. Yes, who recently released a um, letter saying that she wants federal programs to include and consider Indigenous knowledges in their programs. So this is huge because not only are these federal programs administering important programs to tribes that relates to the sovereignty of tribal nations, but also they must do it in a way that they have to consider the traditional knowledge of the people. And this is just groundbreaking because prior to that, uh, you know, many of the programs, not only federal programs, but, you know, in academia and research um, has been really um, uh, uh, stuck to Western science. Right. And how Western science is superior to all other approaches. And indigenous communities have always um, spoken out about how they view the world and how they problem solve already in their own way. And now it's being recognized. And in some of my projects, I've been able to do and learn about these different approaches. And um, it's just amazing how... Um, that mandate has um, been released at this time, and we're just really um, hopeful of where that will take us. And I think it's important to weave into the conversation as well. I mean, what I read is that there are 370 million indigenous people who live in over 90 countries around the world. That's a big number, if you ask me. And then you add that uh, 20% of that land maintains 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. And I just want everybody to press pause on your brain and absorb that. To segue into, I don't think a majority of the population walking around in our country today, either intentionally or not, are aware of the current reality of indigenous people as it relates to lack of access to energy, water, and food infrastructure. So what is that current reality? How bad is it? Or is it not that bad? So in the United States, 12% of Native American households do not have access to running water in their homes. And locally within the state of Arizona, the Navajo Nation, which is the largest tribe in the United States, uh, has only uh, 30%, 30%, I'm sorry, do not have access to running water. And that's huge when you oh. compare it to oh. the average um, American in the United States. And, you know, this is a, a reality of um, Native American communities. And being that we're in Arizona, at the University of Arizona, we've been working on our partnerships and building that with the Navajo Nation over the last decades. And we um, are fortunate to have fostered that trust. And during the pandemic, especially was invited by the Navajo Nation Council to uh, basically pilot these awkward systems that we have been working with a tribal college called the Net College over the last five years. Okay, so 
the reality, when you say, when I first learned that, you should have seen me because I am someone that is on a lifelong journey of caring and expanding and learning and hopefully educating people about the, I would say it was shocking when I found that out. And when I first started interviewing people, it was 40% of indigenous people on the Navajo Nation did not have central power or potable water. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. That is not that far from where I live. So it's, it's, I think it's shocking. And rather than dwell on it, what I feel that your, your, this entire thing about the IRC is, yeah, that's really horrible, but guess what? We're here now and we're going to do a lot to change it. So also expand on us a little bit about, for years and years, I will be having conversations with the impact, continuous and continuously devastating impact of COVID. So the first thing they told us when, you know, it struck, wash your hands all the time. Well, how's that working for you if you have to go how many miles for water? So can you talk a little bit about the over impact? I don't even know what to call it. I was I was getting ready for the show. I'm thinking, what do you call this? I mean, we had it and we had all these resources and we could go out and buy hand sanitizer. We have running water. What was the impact in terms of food, energy, water, and safety on the Navajo Nation? I mean, isn't it basically a food desert? And I say that with all respect. I mean, it's not really great land for growing lots of crops. So address that a little bit. Yes. So um, I think the reason that um, not many people know about these issues is because of the lack of education, including you know, our histories into K through 12 education. That's where a lot of it is missing. And so Native Americans have been living this reality and have been trying to get their voice heard. And oftentimes they're not included in discussions or even when it comes to water at the table in terms of water management decisions. I myself grew up on the Navajo Nation without electricity and running water. And it wasn't until I was um, got my degree, college degree, that my parents finally were able to get running water. And so this you know, was a was common for me growing up, you know, with my friends and neighbors who also didn't have electricity and running water. So I lived through a time when the hantavirus oh my was gosh. spreading across the, right. the our communities. Yes. And even then, you know, as a little kid, um, you know, you have mouse droppings everywhere. Um, it's very moist time. And so just trying to clean, you know, our home, you have all these mouse droppings around and you have to go down to a well, get, you know, a five gallon bucket of water to wash. It's pretty um, cumbersome. And so it's not an easy task. Thankfully, nobody in my family um, came down with hantavirus, but now with the COVID-19 pandemic and the um, virus that we're experiencing now, you know, the same challenges, but I think the virus is um, much, much more severe. And so with the people who don't have running water in their home, they have to travel five to 50 miles 
uh, one way to get water. And then they haul it in these um, different containers, anything from, you know, five-gallon containers that they may put in a wheelbarrow all the way to, uh, you know, a 250 to 550-gallon water cistern that they would put in the back of their truck and get their water that way. And so this is water that they would bring home and either they would ladle it out bit by bit or they may have a water cistern at their home site and have a pump um, if they are fortunate to have electricity that could pump their water into their home. But nonetheless, when you are using limited amounts of water, you just don't run the water, you know, for 20 seconds. Right, and leave and go turn something else on and go put something in the dryer. You don't You don't ever leave the water running, right? Ever. No. Ever. No, you don't. And that was something, you know, for me coming off of the Navajo Nation and, you know, going to college, that was a little bit shocking for me, you know, when people would turn on their shower, you know, college students running their water. And it made me really nervous and apprehensive. I get it. As a young kid. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So hygiene is actually the least priority when you have limited water. Water is for drinking. Um, Water is to feed your animals, your livestock, to, to feed... Um, you know, the the animals that you have and also water water your crops. So hygiene is um, last priority. And, you know, in terms of, you know, taking baths or showers, those um, are not a daily routine. So when the CDC said to uh, everyone to wash their hands for 20 seconds, right. you know, that's a long time to sing A, B, C, D all the way to the end. And meanwhile, how many gallons does that use? How long, you know, if you're washing your hands every time, you know, it can easily run through your supply of water. And so that is the first challenge is getting water. And then if you're fortunate um, to have electricity, you know, your your water could be hot. You can have a water pump to pump that up. But if you're part of the 40% that don't have electricity, then you don't have a way to um, easily heat, heat up your water or even to turn on your lights, uh, to have warmth. And that's even more uh, of of a challenge for for people, so um, you know those that don't have electricity may um, often burn wood for warmth or uh, coal, and they likely would um, heat up their water using a propane stove or just uh, heating up up on the the wood fired stove. So that's um, an insight into what it means, you know, when you don't have electricity or running water. Now, when it comes to food as well, um, there are only 13 grocery stores on the Navajo Nation. When you go to those grocery stores, the quality of the food is not great. You know, you have like the worst quality of produce. um, And also that the prices are so expensive. You know, even for myself, when I go there, um, 
I see the prices and I'm like, wow, this is expensive. And so when people on the Navajo Nation who have limited financial resources are forced to buy this type of poor quality food at high prices, it's just so unjust. But many people um, resort to going off the Navajo Nation because the prices, you know, in the local border towns at, you know, Sam's Club and Costco, they tend to have lower prices. So people uh, go there to get food. And that's just adding to another problem of uh, financial funds going off of the Navajo Nation to support businesses off the Navajo Nation. So that becomes an economic problem as well. It's another burden. And I, you know, I usually save my reflections to the end of the show, but there are going to, there are going to be too many. And I, I want to, we have a wonderful audience of people all over the world, wonderful, and they care and they listen and they download the podcast. But I, I'm inviting all of you, the listeners, to think about what Carletta just said, Start, starting with she is Dr. Carletta Chief, and she grew up in a home with no electricity. So when you're thinking you might be having a rough day, press pause there. I know I did. When I started learning about this, I'm like, you have nothing to complain about, Missy, nothing. And I'm very aware of water because we grew up in a home with a well, and the well went dry many times. And talk about panic with four kids. My mom didn't work. And all of a sudden, you're realizing you can't do the laundry, you can't, there's no water to cook with, all of those things. So I grew up with a very healthy respect for water, which I don't think most people have. And it's not out of maliciousness. It's out, you grew up with in a household where if you wanted water, you went to the faucet and turned it on. Now you can go to your refrigerator and get it out of there. And that is not the case for a significant number of people in our country. And I want to underscore Indigenous people, that is, they were the ones that were here first. So that's just my little rant and just acknowledgement for how critical it is for people to understand, to respond, and to help figure out solutions to make a change. So, But there is hope, and I'm not going to be Debbie Downer. I don't want to do that because I this sends me down a rabbit hole. And um, I go off about Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos could solve this problem in six weeks because he has so much money. And that does not help. He has not called me to ask me about that. But maybe, who knows, maybe someone will tell him I'm talking about him on national my national podcast. So you have a five-year, $3 million NFS-funded program. Um, tell us about that because it is to me, so hopeful because of the model itself and how you are going to be using it for education, which to me is a key to so much of this, education on every level. So tell us about this wonderful grant, which is not nearly enough money either, I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah, so this grant um, funded by the National Science Foundation is supporting students to train with us to understand uh, what are the challenges at the food, energy, water nexus, and to be leaders to think about um, the challenges that uh, are, are in the nexus to go outside of their discipline and to work together as a team to think think about how to uh, address these uh, challenges, but also what are these challenges in indigenous communities? And what does it mean to address these challenges? How would you work with an indigenous communities? So we train our students um, and give them tools 
and mentorship and experiences to understand firsthand how to work alongside with Indigenous communities. So how we do this is, of course, we have our scholarly works where our students can learn about Indigenous communities through American Indian Studies courses. We also have guest lectures in our seminars. They also read uh, literature from Linda Smith, who has a book called Decolonizing Research. Okay. And why, yes, and why Indigenous communities are so hesitant to even enter into research partnerships because of all the bad practices that have happened in the past. Um, So with the decolonizing research, what we do is we break down Western paradigms and really think about the community and how we can uh, you, you, we can be guided by our indigenous partners on how to uh, uh, form, identify the problem and formulate the questions so that the questions are coming from the communities and that their priorities are elevated and that they're involved in every single step of the process. So our students um, learn about all these important research ethics, uh, tribal consultation, indigenous data sovereignty, and what it means to decolonize research. We also have a seminar series called Native Voices in STEM where experts come to talk about their work and how they um, do uh, research with tribal communities that is decolonized. And then we take our students into the communities for weeks and months at a time. They live out there. um, They do uh, an immersion experience uh, for short to um, longer, semi-longer time, periods of time. And we even had students that lived on the Navajo Nation without running water and and had to haul water. And so they really began to see, you know, what it means to live like this. And being in the community, being immersed there really gives you a different perspective and, and just a true um, understanding of the challenges that the community faces. And that really helps in terms of how you interact with the community respectfully. You just begin to appreciate um, the community and their their values. So is the NFS, is it a research grant? Because if it is, when you, I, I have you know, experience and I'm aware of writing grants. There's an overall theme or solutions you're hoping to discover. What would you say the overall theme is for this? And what are some of your hopes and dreams for what you might find out in the next three to five years? Yes, yeah, so this grant is actually a training grant. So it's a little bit different from other research grants. Okay. Yeah, so 90% of the funds actually go towards um, uh providing tuition waiver and living expense stipend for the students so that they can just dedicate their time and energy to the training. 
And then the 10% actually provides, um, you know, just small support to buy some equipment for travel, uh, for um, supporting our technicians. And the um, overall theme of the training grant is the development of off-grid technologies to address food, energy, and water insecurities. Got it. And the way, yeah, and the way we have done this is um, looking at uh, off-grid, solar-powered, nanofiltration water systems that are connected to solar-powered control environmental agricultural systems where they are linked and that the water system, um, the the effluent or the brine from the water system could be used for agricultural purposes. Right. So, right. yeah. So our students uh, center their uh, research and their training around this overall research theme. And it just feels so good because it really is intercultural and multidisciplinary. And I think that's really important. You're not just having like an, a, a food scientist on it. It's the energy people and the water people and the the food students that have an interest in each of those areas, which to me can bring about amazing results. It, it's just the best of all possible worlds and very well thought out. And when you when you put, when you layer that on top of there's no connection to central power and water is really another factor that has to contribute to the challenges you face and even trying to bring, bring about long-term systemic change. So um, what's your vision for the potential impact. Like I like to think about this is a wonderful grant. It's exciting. It has so many of the critical pieces that I think are necessary for success. So what's your dream? Because I think one of the things that jumped out for me, you get it about powerful partnerships. It's not just you and the IRC. It's not just the Navajo Nation. It's a real working partnership. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So one of the things um, I don't think that others really understand is uh, partnership building. And for me, even as a Dene woman coming from the Navajo Nation, I had to build that trust because now I'm working for a university doing research right. and automatically I am on the other side. So I had to build that trust and it was hard. You know, I um, was you know, grilled on what I'm doing, where the money's coming from, how's the data going to come back, how are you going to keep working with us? So I, even as a, an Indigenous woman, had to build that trust, trust as well. And once I built that trust, I was committed in sustaining that trust, finding ways to build upon those stepping stones to something bigger. And I'm only one person, and I have a great team working alongside with me. And one of the greatest accomplishments of the Indigenous Resilience Center so far with the support of the University of Arizona is bringing on new faculty. When we talk about the food energy, water nexus. There are so many aspects of what that means to indigenous communities. And I get a lot of these questions from the community about 
uh, traditional agriculture, about, uh, you know, other types of water system, about how other tools we could use. And, and so, and also other communities, we need to expand to work with other tribes in this area. And, you know, really our work is just a small piece of such a much bigger challenge. And so with the IRC, we're bringing on new faculty, faculty that are are doing this. They are working in indigenous communities. They have built that trust. They have different expertise with different Native nations. So we're bringing on new faculty and we're expanding our partnerships and would like to build new partnerships. So what our next step is to starting to engage in tribal consultation with Native nations about the IRC so that the questions and the input are coming from them and we're getting direction on where we should go because we want the IRC to be trusted and to be the go-to center uh, for tribes. And so we're engaging in that conversation, bringing on new faculty, and the vision is um, to expand upon our work. We've learned a lot through Indigifuse, and we want to sustain those components beyond the life of the grant. And with the IRC, we will be able to do that through um, the support of the University of Arizona, particularly through the training, uh, lessons learned that we um, have uh, gathered through the years, and then also sustaining many of those uh, efforts through other grants that the Indigifuse team has uh, secured recently, including the Native Fuse Alliance, which is a grant that is supporting Native Americans and their pathways uh, from K through 12 all the way to faculty to pursue education and careers in food, energy, water systems, as well as the Transformation Network, which is with the University of New Mexico to look at sustainable trajectories for uh, rural to urban communities on uh, the areas of environmental sustainability. So we're putting all these um, different nuggets together to build a bigger uh, sustainable program and building upon our work. And I think we should clarify what FUSE means because I had to look it up and then I just read some of the notes you put and it's for food, energy, water, and then is it safety and security? Is that what the S stands for? For our training program, it's actually represents security, security and sovereignty. And sovereignty, okay. Yes, okay. but it can also be systems as well. <laughs> right, right. And then you talked about decolonizing, and I wrote down the name of the book, and I will look at I'll be looking for it. I get a lot of assignments after these shows, but you explained what decolonization means, and it's so important. Intercultural awareness, understanding of indigenous communities, priorities, respectful partnerships. I get that. But does it mean, what does it mean as it relates to Western knowledge? I mean, is it like, this is the new knowledge, or is there a combination of some of the things that Western knowledge might be able to contribute, I'm treading lightly here because to me, there's a lot 
in what you're trying to accomplish and where does Western knowledge fit into that? Yes, yeah, so it's not um, necessarily abandoning, abandoning science uh, in terms of the Western science, but it's rather centering indigenous perspectives and priorities and um, ensuring that that's elevated and that our work is actually supporting indigenous worldviews and their perspectives on the challenges that they face. Because indigenous communities, they already have their problem-solving approaches. Right. And Western science can provide tools to support those already indigenous established problem solving. So it's a matter of coming together and that involves co-production of knowledge, co-designing of solutions, co-solving. And so we're really focused on uh, um, elevating indigenous knowledge so that we can step away from, um, you know, superiority of predominantly a European view of uh, solving the challenges that we face. So you're being so nice about it. Like you're being so nice and I'm not so nice sometimes with my mouth about, yeah, the Western world, look where it's gotten us. And it's, it's. I have to be very careful because I know that I was born with white privilege and that I bring that to every conversation and I'm hyper aware of it, but your patience and respect and understanding will get us a long way. Um, when it When we talk about, like my journey and switching to yours. When I first started Mrs. Green's World, a lot of what we were trying to do was educate people about climate change and its impact. And that lens has shifted dramatically to much more intentional conversations about climate mitigation and resilience. And that was even before COVID. We started talking about Climate awareness, if you're not aware, the train left the station and the party started without you because climate change is here happening and hurting people every single day. But when it comes to the Navajo Nation and indigenous people and cultures, talk to us about community resilience because you talked about, you know, be able to respond to and recover from perturbations and pandemics and disasters. What in God's name, do you have to consider when it comes to resilience in the face of another pandemic? And, you know, we were talking about some of my friends at the university. Jim Beiser is a good one. And I remember him saying to me two years ago, if you think COVID is a one and done, you are nuts. Like there will be more pandemics. So how does your work inform community resilience? It's got to be so important if you ask me, but I'm asking you. That's a great question, and it's something that I have thought for a long time about what does Indigenous resilience mean. And actually, it's really uh, what has fueled me and helped me to uh, succeed in my own educational journey. Because for me, when I think about Indigenous resilience, I think about my ancestors, how they uh, endured and survived the long walk and my grandmother was a weaver and she actually uh, wove rugs in exchange for food. And that's how my family is actually here today because uh, many people died at that um, internment camp. And then I think about my parents, um, how they were taken away as little kids to boarding school. And uh, my dad went to Stewart Indian School and my mom went to Chamawa Indian School. 
And they um, taught me to be proud of who I am, my identity, and they taught me my language. And so I spoke Navajo as a young child and speak it fluently. And so I think about that resilience from my family um, to be here today and has carried me through my journey going to college as a first-generation student. And so when in the academic literature, we talk about resilience from C.S. Holling, which is who is a Canadian uh, ecologist that early on framed this uh, theory of resilience, you know, in terms of looking at different ecological models and how a system could be perturbed and where they would come back, what state of recovery they could come back to. But for me, um, you know, when I think about Indigenous resilience, it brings together those two thoughts about recovery um, and, and what that means. And so I looked actually in the literature and I found this paper um, from a group in Australia. And they actually did a systematic review of um, work on Indigenous resilience. And they had a really nice definition and they um, define Indigenous resilience as it relates to family, community, language, and how um, communities have um, been resilient um, and not just to survive, but actually thrive in today's world. And I think that's how I see Indigenous resilience because um, I know earlier you were saying how the Navajo Nation, how can you grow food there? But actually our people did grow food there and they still do today, but right. it's not widely practiced because a lot of that was taken away from us. And that is dry land farming. So that's an example of how our people grew food grew, grew food in a semi-arid desert using just um, dry land farming. So that's an example of resilience of that, you know, in, in one aspect, you could just think that as, as agriculture. But the reason why they farm that way was really linked to their identity, to their worldviews, how they value the environment, the water, the sun, and and did it sustainably because it was part of who they are and their worldview. And, you know, you say those things with such pride and it's so important. And what I am sitting here thinking about is, hey, everybody, just wait, because guess who we are going to be turning to for the, that kind of farming as rivers and waters and um, reservoirs continue to dry up. It's really, it's why it's important that we have native seed search and all the work that's being done at the university around that with Gary Napan. There's so many things about we are preparing for not a very um, easy decade or century in terms of water availability in the Southwest. And, and the Navajo people, are not going to be strangers to this, to this sacrifice, to the hardships and all that stuff. And I don't know anybody of my listeners, I'm going to go out on a limb here, that ever had to pay $13.30 for a gallon of water. You think gas is expensive? I mean, it just, it, it's one of those things that almost doesn't go into my head, if that makes any sense. Because it's like, it's so hard for me to think about how hard that is. It's, it's very hard for me as an empath that really cares and is trying to do my part to make a difference. But 
the indigenous people, their perspectives have always mattered. And now everybody better stand up and listen because if you want sustainable water solutions, ask people who have, have, who have been having to conserve it for generations. I mean, it's, it's to me something that um, I look forward to the contributions because I know there will be many. So that's taking a deep breath. Um, I have only one more question. And it's about, um, are there any positive outcomes of the pandemic when it comes to off-grid water treatment systems or things that are hopeful and promising? Because it was really tough. So are there hopes for off-grid water treatment, as you said? What are you doing in that? Like To me, that's one of the critical things, because to me, water is life. Water is life, period, hard stop. There's no denying it. You can live without anything except water. So what has the pandemic fostered or encouraged in terms of water treatment systems? Yes. And we like to say which is water is life and it is and that's shared by many yeah. indigenous communities that water is life and it's a common thread that we share i think the pandemic has um, not only amplified indigenous voices about the challenges that we face but also has united us across um our non-Indigenous friends and partners um, across the communities to work together to address these challenges. And so um, one of the really um, neat things that has happened is the ability to connect. Um, and that has happened, you know, on turbo mode with um, Zoom. <laughs> Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> yes. you know, how fast that's you can a positive begin to reach thing. Yes. yes, it is. It, it is. is. It is. And just the collaborative nature that has um, been fostered. For example, the Navajo Nation Water Access Coordination Group, which was, uh, which is a um, group that the Navajo Nation created that includes not only um, Navajo. Uh, tribal managers, but it includes federal, state, university, NGOs to come together to bring their tools, their resources, and their work together to address water insecurities. And I believe you interviewed, I actually listened to that show with um, Dr. Crystal Tuli Cordova and her sister, Nikki Tuli. Oh, I'm so going to bring that up in the end. I'm so glad you brought it up. Yes. It was amazing. Yes. So Dr. Tuli Cordova was actually at the helm of all this collaborative work. And that is the hope is that, you know, and, and it links back to Indigenous data sovereignty, which is our, all these individuals who have worked on and off Indigenous communities um, to ensure that they are continuing to work collaboratively together to talk to each other, to make their data available, not only to the uh, tribe that they're working with, but to each other so that we can leverage our strengths and our experiences to the common goal of helping the Native nations. So I think that's the hope that has come out of the pandemic. And in terms of the water systems, it's really um, uh, thinking about what we can do right now. Right. Um, and with many people who live off, uh, you know, not in central areas, 
And they likely never will because that's their culture. Right. They live on their ancestral lands. They don't want to live in um, bigger towns or, you know, off move off their ancestral lands. So they may never be connected to uh, central water infrastructure because it's very expensive. So the pandemic has really, um, brought, you know, fostered this innovative thinking about, okay, what can we do right now for people who are not connected to the central water infrastructure? And so with our partnership with Six World Solutions, which is a grassroots community organization led by Janine Yazi and Kern Colley Moore, Google them because I, I feel will. Like, I will Google them. <laughs> Thank goodness for Google. Yes, I feel like Janine Yazi is um, the Navajo version of Winona LaDuke, who back in the 80s was the vice presidential candidate with Ralph Nader and has really done worlds um, of positive work with tribal communities on environmental sustainability. So we partner with Janine Yazi on doing it now, which is piloting these off-grid water systems. And we're still working on it, but we were able to pilot them, see how we can co-design the system, what works and doesn't work, and training the Navajo technicians how to fabricate these systems with the ultimate goal that there will be an entity on the Navajo Nation that can build these systems at a low cost and make it available to people on the Navajo Nation who live remotely to have these systems so that they're no longer drinking non-potable water, but they're treating their local water to drinking water um, standards and to be able to drink it safely. And, you know, I can't help but like all these bells going off in my head about when we talk about how costly it is and what happens to me as a raving maniac when I think about how much money is spent for Mars exploration. And someday I'm going to have a guest on that's really in favor of that and is going to convince me that the hundreds of billions of dollars that we save, that we spend on that is worthwhile. But that is a story for another show. Um, I did want to mention a couple things. Somehow, the Dig Deep Water people came across my radar, and I interviewed George McGraw, and it, it created like a series of a ripple effect that ended up with me interviewing Crystal and Nikki. It wasn't because of George and Dig Deep, but it was because of Nancy Peterson, I am absolutely sure of that, from um, the Howery uh, program at the University of Arizona. And it, it just blows my mind because George, not unlike me, he was doing work in Africa, and I'm doing other work. And a donor said to him, I will donate to you. Called him up and said, I will donate to you $50 if you'll start getting clean water to the Navajo reservation. I think it's great you're doing work to do that in the Sudan, but how about in our own backyard? And it was very, um, I'd say, pejorative to him or something. I'm like, what? And the way that I started learning about what the reality is for so many of our indigenous people in 2022. So it's like, yeah, there's hope there. And hopefully there'll be a lot more spotlights on this. Do you have any final thoughts? I know your time is precious. I have a couple of reflections I'd like to share, but is there any shout out or anything you'd like to add that you wish I had asked you that I may have missed? 
Well, um, believe me, I have thought that many times when I was growing up. I used to think, well, when was electricity invented and I don't have electricity? I you know, know that really right? motivated yes. me. Yes, it's like, how can this be? Yes, to go to college. But when you're talking about how can we, you know, stimulate this and move this farther and faster, I really believe it's the people on the ground, like Janine Yazzie, Kern Colley Moore, um, Native Renewables like uh, Suzanne Singer and Wahala Johns, um, all of these grassroots organizations that are committed, they know the people, they're working tirelessly day in and day out. Right, boots on the ground. Yes, boots on the ground. They're the people that need to be funded and they need the the Bezos donation to make their work go, you know, on turbo mode. You know what we have to do? We have to get to his wife because she is so generous. Yes. And when I was talking about this with some people at dinner, and I, I, I don't know why I pick on Jeff Bezos, maybe because he's one of the richest people in the world, but his wife, I keep thinking about how do we get how do we get in front of her because this is a solution that money can solve. Money doesn't solve all problems. It can't change somebody's mind. It can't force acculturation and integration and all that. But it can it can buy a lot of things to make change happen more quickly. So maybe we can put that out to the universe. And I hope that you will share this podcast with all those people that you honored by bringing their name into the conversation because it's out there then. And for the million listens we had last year to our podcast, you never know who's listening and what might come about as a result. So um, so my reflections are, you know, I started this show by sharing the who and the what and the why of the University of Arizona's Indigenous Resilience Center. It supports Indigenous students, staff, faculty, models, teaching, and respectful tribal engagement. And I honor that and love that. I honor that it's a hub for tribal resilience solutions, scholarships, everything you said, I was sitting here smiling and hopeful, but I couldn't possibly end this show without mentioning the Thule sisters, Crystal and Nikki, as it relates to you and your leadership. Because I don't think most people who are living life with good intentions and the right mindset have any idea, especially if they are white, that you could be afraid to go onto the U of A campus. Like, what's the big deal? And I worked with an at-risk community in South Tucson, and the parents told me we didn't know we were allowed to go on the university campus. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. Something that never, ever entered my mind. And they talked about you and your leadership and the impact you've had on their lives and their success in the university community. It was hard for them. You don't just acculturate. You are coming from the Navajo Nation into this crazy, zany, wackadoodle, high energy, whatever the heck else, U of A, and I'm a graduate, so I know what I'm talking about. But to me, what they said, and this interview is so illustrative and such a living, breathing example of who you are and what you're about. Um, you can confirm with some of your colleagues at the university about my level of excitement when I heard this interview was really going to happen. And what they said about you had a lasting impact on me as they so successfully painted the challenges that life at a large university can present. It is not a walk in the park. And I hear the noise going on back there. A session might have ended, but I have to finish this. It's abundantly clear that you have accepted, and I hope this is spot on, of how 
important it is that you showed up in the world to the Thule sisters, to your tribe, to the, all the indigenous people. And I'm going to get emotional here for a minute. And to me, it matters. Um, I don't lose it much, but this is, a, this is near and dear to my heart. You matter. And I'm deeply grateful that we found a way to make this work. It had its own challenges, but we made it work. And we talked about what matters. And I just want to thank you for all of that. And my final thanks is always to you, my amazing, wonderful listeners, because without you, there would be no us. So go out there and make a difference and get involved in being the change. So Carletta, thank you. I know this was a big challenge for you to find the time with all on your plate, and I am forever grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ahihe, and thank you so much for the opportunity to share and also just to make, you know, full circle all of these conversations. You mentioned the Howry program, the Thule sisters, um, Dig Deep. You know, we're all connected. Yes. And we can all work together collectively talking about these challenges and elevating the voices of Indigenous communities. Love it. And let's end on that note. Anything I can do to help that, sign me up. And bless you and thank you. And I hope our paths cross in person someday, not just on a Zoom call. So go forth and conquer. We need you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't.